Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the life that we have in and through him. Thank you that you satisfy us in him. Please open your word to us this morning that we would be transformed by it and change us. Let not a one of us leave here today without having met with you and been transformed by your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend I got sick. Uh, it, was, it was a cold that had been brewing for a while. And, um, you know, I, I drugged up on decongestants. And, well, that made me really thirsty. And then I, you know, got a got dehydrated, got a headache, and that made me grumpy, grumpier than usual, and I was meaner than usual to my wife, and meaner than usual to my kids, and I preached a worse than usual sermon, which made me madder, and um, I was thirsty through the whole sermon, and then I went home that night, Sunday night, and was uh, really, really thirsty. That headache was killing me. I went through the house and I found the largest super big gulp kind of cup I could find. Plastic cups are in short supply these days. They're, they're um, going, you know, smaller. And you've got to find one of those big 64-ounce ones. They still make them. And that was, that was what I was looking for. I found the biggest cup I could find. I was so thirsty. Um, I drank, filled it up, and drank the whole thing down and tried to go to sleep. Super congested. About an hour into sleeping, I was awakened again. Head was pounding, feeling really, really thirsty. So I went and filled that cup up again. I drank it down to the bottom. And finally starting to feel a little sloshy down here, you know? <laughs> but also starting to feel like I was, I was finally quenching that thirst a little bit. Um, but I filled the cup up again, right, because I knew it would probably come back, and, and uh, I just drank a little, little, just, well, maybe about half of it, honestly. I, um, and you know where this is going, right? I mean, I, I fell asleep, and I really was starting to get deep sleep, but you know where this is going, right? It, into my bloodstream, to my kidneys, and to a bladder that's about half the size of that cup, right? So... Didn't sleep for very long. I was, I was just so thirsty last weekend. Um, and you know this feeling, don't you? You know the feeling of being so thirsty. You feel like you're just about to die. Uh, Aubrey was telling me about this great Indian restaurant in town where you can get level four. Uh, do you know about this level of spice? Uh, but maybe the cups are really small. Have you been there? And felt like, where is the waiter? Where am I going to get a refill because I'm about to die? I'm so thirsty. Or maybe you've been on a hike around here, and uh, it ends up being a lot longer back than you thought, and you'd already finished your water bottle on the way up, and you feel like, I'm just going to die because I'm so thirsty. Or maybe it's for something stronger. Maybe you remember being, maybe you were pregnant. You just had to have that Chick-fil-A milkshake. Or maybe life was just so hard and things got so bad 
and so much stress and so many other things piled up, you just had to have a drink. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who was a newlywed, and uh, he brought his wife to his church, and they, uh, they were just, you know, brand new at this, and she went to the women's ministry event at church for the first time. He didn't really know anything about it, but apparently the women's ministry thing at church was the worst kind of church ladies you can imagine. And uh, she came home from that first and her last women's ministry thing at the church, and she came in the front door. She walked right by him, right to the fridge. She opened it up. She pulled out a cold one. She popped the top. She drank it all the way to the bottom. (laughs) Put the empty bottle back in the fridge, slammed the door, walked past him, and went straight to bed. (laughs) She was just so thirsty. (laughs) We all know what it's like to be thirsty. I think many of us know what it's like to be that thirsty. You know, the Bible talks a lot about being thirsty. Uh, 66 books if you're Protestant, and 59 of those talk about drinking or being thirsty or, or uh, cups and, and uh, somehow quenching your thirst. 59 of those 66 books. And Elise and I go to Israel every few years. We lead tours there. Last time we went, we ended up being there in August during a heat wave, and we learned a new lesson about what it's like to be in the Bible Uh, Bible lands, when it's hot and dry, we learned about shade, and we learned about being thirsty, and we learned why the Bible talks about being thirsty so much. It it, It was pretty tough under the sun in August in Israel. The Bible uses this idea of thirst to signify more than just that that basic need for liquid. The Bible uses thirst to describe this deep longing within us. for, for connection and satisfaction. Um, we all have different ways of quenching this, and sometimes we, or trying to quench it, let me put it that way, we all have different ways. Sometimes we get distracted looking at the ways other people are trying to quench their thirst, broken ways they're trying to quench their thirst, and we forget that we all have this thing in common, that we're all trying to quench our thirst in a variety of different ways that just don't work. We're all a part of uh, what, what we might call the universal fellowship of the thirsty. Everybody is like this. Everybody has this deep longing and wants to see their thirst quenched. Think about how you may have tried to quench your thirst this week. Maybe... Um, well, think about it in terms of how did you spend your money? What did you, what, what did you spend it on, uh, perhaps trying to meet that deep need within? Maybe it was some new gadget or new furniture, or maybe it was real food and drink. Uh, or think about what was really on your mind all week long. What, the, what were the things that were just preoccupying you? Maybe relationships or uh, animosity or frustration at work or something that was just... Uh, controlling you, and you were thinking about how can I meet this uh, inner need to have my thirst quenched. Or maybe you don't know. I mean, a lot of times I can't figure out what it is that's driving me crazy. Um, But I know that I'm spending a lot of time scrolling, scrolling, (laughs) scrolling. Maybe you're doing this. Maybe you're just scrolling. Maybe you're 
waiting for a message, a personal message, a connection, somebody just trying to reach out and give you a word or something, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. We spend a lot of time looking down. And the problem is we're looking the wrong way. Augustine, the great pastor and bishop in North Africa in the 4th century, spent most of his life trying to fill this hole inside in a whole variety of ways. He writes about this in his autobiography, The Confessions. And he learned the hard way that you just can't fill it with anything other than the Lord Jesus. And only when he looked up did he discover the Lord. And he said, in the beginning of his autobiography, he said to the Lord, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. About a thousand years later, during the Enlightenment, Blaise Pascal, uh, years living as a religious skeptic, experimenting with lots of different pleasures, trying to fill this hole inside him in in search of some answer. He's a brilliant philosopher, by the way, also a mathematician and a physicist. Um, And as a young man, he did experiments on vacuums. Um, There was a lot of controversy about whether a vacuum was possible in nature. And Pascal overturned the prevailing theory about vacuums. He was able to prove that they were, in fact, possible in nature. And later on in his life, as an older man, Pascal is reading Augustine, and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And After he died, they discovered a little gem that he wrote. So so wonderful. It brings his science and his faith together. He says there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. And it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God made known through Jesus Christ. Isn't that terrific? God made us hungry and thirsty for a reason. He made us this way. Before we fell into sin, everything we ate, everything we drank, was communion with him. There was no separation between us and God. Everything we consumed was communion all the time. Every meal, every drink was with the Lord. But then our first parents ate the forbidden fruit, and for the first time they ate something, they consumed something for itself. They consumed it in hiding from the Lord, not in communion with the Lord. And and from that time on, we've been eating and drinking, trying to fill something which was broken between us and him. And nothing we eat or drink satisfies because of that broken communion. We're so thirsty. We're so thirsty trying to fill the void. So along comes Jesus, right? And along comes Jesus. If you've been here in recent weeks, you've been hearing the story of Jesus and John. And um, a few weeks ago, you heard about Jesus' first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, where he turns these enormous uh, uh, basins of water into wine. What a fabulous way to announce that he is the one that the Old Testament prophets spoke of, the one that everybody's been waiting for who would come and would quench our thirst. And that's the one that you'll be discovering all through this story of the Gospel of John. So this morning we come to this great passage of Jesus as he meets the woman, the Samaritan woman, at the well. It's a remarkable passage 
Um, the well is in, uh, outside of Nablus in the West Bank, and we've been there uh, before. I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a moment. For some, people, for some reason, people make a big deal in this passage out of the differences between Jesus and the woman. Different ethnicities and different religions. She was Samaritan. She was not Jewish in terms of her religion. But they miss out on the fact that they share some things, some fundamental things in common, including the expectation that Messiah will someday come to satisfy our thirst. Later on in the story, we didn't read it this morning, but the woman says at the end of it, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. Verse 25. Even though she was a Samaritan, she knew that Messiah would come to quench this thirst that we have inside. It was this common understanding that gave Jesus a connection to be able to talk with her about who he was and what he came to do. You know, people also make such a big deal out of the ethnic difference between this woman and Jesus. Commentators oftentimes highlight um, what the woman herself points out in verse 9, if you look at it, that there was this great animosity back in that day between Jews and Samaritans. And everybody rightly observes that Jesus was not just any old foreigner, that Jesus was Jewish. And so the same kind of animosity that we would expect between Jews and Palestinians today is the kind of animosity that would have been typical between a Jewish man, a typical Jewish man, and a typical Samaritan man. But we don't have, in this passage, a typical Jewish man, and we don't have a typical Samaritan man. Also, the location is important. Didn't happen at just any old place, did it? Look at the picture on the front of your bulletin. You'll see it happened at this well. And wells, if you've read your Old Testament, and a lot of times people commenting on this passage don't, don't really think about this, but if you've read your Old Testament, then you'll know that the well in the Old Testament was the saloon of the Wild West. It was the place, it was the watering hole where you go to, uh, to, to meet interesting people. And maybe you go to meet the love of your life, right? It's a place where dreams come true. A lot of famous Old Testament romances began at wells, including the romance of the man for whom the, the well is named, Jacob himself. Jacob fell in love with Rachel at a well, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, and that's very important to the story. So again, the man at this well this morning is not just any old man, he's Jesus. And from everything we know about Jesus, Jesus loves people from different ethnicities. Jesus loves not only the Jews, people like him, but he loves Gentiles, people that are different from him. Jesus loves Samaritans. Jesus was a refugee as a child. Jesus cares about all kinds of people, different people from him. Jesus is a peacemaker, and we can expect that Jesus had a soft spot for the Samaritans. And then this woman is not a Samaritan man. And she's not just any woman, is she? She's an especially promiscuous woman. She'd had five husbands, it says in verse 18. She's with the sixth, who is not her husband. And in this story, she's talking with yet another man, a man from the upper caste of the Jews, 
probably in much better uh, financial situation than, than any man she was with. And we just have to imagine that as this man comes up to her boldly in the middle of the day and asks her for a drink at the town saloon, that she's wondering if she's going to get lucky, if this is going to be her lucky seven. Right? And so I don't think that she's hostile in verse 9 when she comes up to him. I think that she's flirtatious. She's saying, how is it that you, a Jew, is going to ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? Wink, wink. And her question opens the door for Jesus to talk to her about what's really going on with her desires, what she really, really wants. This desire that has caused her unsuccessfully to run through six men already. Jesus says, verse 10, if you knew who you were talking to, I I don't especially like the translation on the front of the the bulletin, the, the gift of God, is what she says here. Um, The gift of God was back in John 3.16, by the way, right? We know, as the readers of this passage, who the gift of God is. And Jesus says, if you knew what everybody who's reading John's gospel by now knows, if you knew who you were talking to, the gift of God, you would ask me for a drink of living water instead. Tables are turned now, right? I'm not the thirsty one. You are, Jesus is saying. But living water is a distraction for us. When we hear living water, we think of 1980s Christian marketers trying to help Jesus rebrand his ministry, perhaps. It's, um, it's a terrible name for a ministry. Don't change the name of this church to living water. Um, but this is not what, what's going on here. Living water in those days was not a spiritual kind of term. Living water in those days was simply the way you talked about drinking water, potable water. It was living water. Why? Because people had cisterns or rain barrels, and those would fill up with water that they could use um, for washing clothes and things. But if you want to have drinking water, don't drink from the rain barrel. You've got to drink living water, right? Flowing water, fresh water. So the woman takes Jesus at face value, I think. She understands him simply to be saying that he could give her drinking water. And so she asks a very legitimate question, verse 11. So given that you have no rope and bucket, how are you going to get the water to me? Because, again, look at the cover of the bulletin, and you'll see maybe, um, maybe the shape of the well, but certainly not the depth of the well. We, we go to this place when we go to Israel, talking with Aubrey and Janelle about going with us in June 2018. If you guys would like to go with us, we'd love for you to go. Uh, so when we go, we go to the West Bank, and we go to uh, this, this place outside of Nablus, and uh, we get to go to this well. And um, it's about 130 feet down to the water below. It takes a long time to pull that rope up <laughs> to get the water out. But once we pull the rope up, you can actually drink from the well. So Elise and I have had, had a cool drink from this well. It's pretty fun. 130 feet down below. So the woman's question is a really good one, I think, a practical question. In verse 12, she asks a follow-up question. Um, again, people oftentimes read this question with ethnic hostility. Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. As if the woman is trying to pick a fight with Jesus uh, over ethnicity, over whose ancestry is better. But there was never any debate about this. Everybody always believed that Samaritans and Jews came from the same ancestry, from Jacob. Why would she say such a thing like this if she was trying to be hostile? What if instead of trying to provoke Jesus with hostility, she was trying to make a connection? What if she was trying to connect with him over a story that they both would have known and loved? What if her reference to our father Jacob was a a nod towards the story that we heard read this morning, that ancient story of Jacob the Jew who went on a long journey and ended up at a well in the middle of the day when the sun was high and it was super hot, and he fell in love with a foreign, beautiful maiden. What if she's trying to remind him of this great story? You know, in that story, as we heard, when Jacob sees Rachel... um, the, the stone was on top of the well. It was super heavy, but suddenly he has this Samson kind of strength, and he's able to move the stone away, and they uh, fall in love right there, right? And if there was any story that Samaritan women living around what is known as Jacob's well would have known and remembered, it would have been this story. So I read verse 12 very differently not as ethnic hostility, but as more flirtation. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well. What are you going to give me? Wink, wink. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but he did not sin, and he didn't get distracted or sidetracked either. He says, verse 13 and 14, that living water is indeed a play on words. It's much more than simply drinking water. He says, whoever drinks of this water, the water from Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst again, because it will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But what is Jesus talking about? What could it be that would quench thirst forever? Communion with God, right? Reconnection, reconciliation with him. And through the rest of the encounter, as Jesus talks to the woman about her, her six lovers, and as he talks with her then about worship, he's talking about the same thing through the whole story. He's talking about reconnection, communion, intimacy of relationship being the thing that fills the hole in our hearts. We try to fill it in many, many different ways, but it is ultimately this connection with God that we're all longing for, and Jesus is pointing to that as the answer for her. The end of the story, the light clicks on for the woman. Verse 25, I know that Messiah, the Christ, will come. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. The light comes on for her. We're all just like this Samaritan woman. We are all thirsty and we're all promiscuous because we're all trying to fill this hole in a lot of different ways that never satisfy. And along comes Jesus, the living water, who offers to fill this God-shaped vacuum inside us. Later on, Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, he brings the topic up again. He says this, John 7, 37 to 39, If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John 
adds an explanatory note, as he often does, very, very helpfully, John says, he said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Great news. Do you want this gift? Do you want this gift of living water? Do you want this gift to fill you inside where the longing drives you to do all these crazy other things, these distractions all the time? Do you want to be filled in this way? In John 3, Nicodemus, as you heard last week, I I think, Nicodemus never asks at the end. Nicodemus never, never receives. He just fades back into the darkness. In John 4, the Samaritan woman asks, Lord, give me this water. And it's a great prayer to to pray today. He does. He gives us the living water. All we have to do is ask him for it. We have to pray this same prayer. And there's no better prayer than this. Give me this water, she says. And you can rest assured that he does and he will if you ask him today. But what if you've done this, though? What if you have asked and received, but now you're feeling thirsty again? It's a common experience among Christians. I'm sure you know, having come to faith in Jesus, having experienced that initial satisfaction in him, um, nevertheless, we begin to feel dry again. We start to feel it, this kind of spiritual malaise that sets in. No longer feeling that close communion with the Lord. uh, Jesus said, you'll never thirst again. Was he lying? Was he lying? This happens whenever we unknowingly go back to the old habits, go back to those old broken ways of trying to fill the vacuum. And we do it all the time. But fortunately, there's a solution for it. It's called the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is talking about uh, in the passage that we read from the New Testament this morning. We'll just talk about this very briefly in closing. The Bible uses two expressions to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And these are different. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is about the, the initiation that we have into Christianity. That coming to faith in Jesus. Um, this is sort of what Jesus was talking about last week in John 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. The baptism of the Holy Spirit looking forward to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit would be poured out on all the believers. And ever since then, for all who put their faith in Christ, all of us are baptized into the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter where you were born, when you were born. It doesn't matter who your parents are, what your ethnicity, uh, what your background, what you've done. It doesn't matter at all. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're baptized into his Holy Spirit, just like what happened on Pentecost. So the expression, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is an expression that describes Christian initiation, coming to faith in Jesus. It's not a reference to the sacrament of baptism. Rather, the sacrament of baptism is a reference to it. In other words, Christian baptism is an outward sign of the baptism of the Spirit within us. Being born again, the Spirit coming to fill the vacuum in our hearts. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The other expression is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And um, this, is, this describes what happens whenever we draw near to the Lord. When we devote ourselves or yield ourselves more fully to Him. Jesus was the first person to be described in this way. 
Um, but there are many, many others throughout, as you guys were going through Acts, you heard this expression many times, I'm sure, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, uh, Peter, Barnabas, and so on. And what we read from the epistle to the Ephesians this morning, um, we heard Paul talking about this, right? Paul calling them to watch out for the old bad habits of trying to quench their thirst with other things that don't satisfy. Don't get drunk on wine, but get drunk on the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about initiation. The filling of the Holy Spirit is about life together with the Lord. Life in communion with him. It speaks to this promise that Jesus makes to the Samaritan woman. How will we never thirst again? By remaining in communion with the Lord. By remaining in communion with the Lord. So a couple of examples of how this works in daily life. Think about marriage for a minute. There's the official declaration, the pronouncement that happens in a wedding service, right? I declare you man and wife. The two become one. That's sort of like the baptism of marriage. That's the initiation into marriage. Then there's the rest of life together. (laughs) There's the rest of doing life as a married couple. Um, That involves keeping the promises that were made at that that wedding, right? Caring for one another, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. That's the rest of life. That's the filling of the marriage. The wedding is the baptism. The rest of life is the filling. To receive the official declaration that you're married and then to not keep the promises is going to result in a really empty-feeling marriage, right? But you keep the promises that you make to one another, that's a very full marriage. And both partners don't go looking anywhere else to be filled. See how it works? Same thing with church participation, believe it or not. You make a membership commitment to this church saying, I'm in love with this church. I want to be a part of this church. I really love you people. I'm making a commitment. That's great. That's sort of your baptism into Church of the Incarnation. Now, keep your promises, right? If you make this grand promise when you become a member here and then you never come back, you never come to worship, you're never in a small group, you never give of your money, you never give of your time, some church you're a part of, right? There's the baptism, and then there's the filling. Our relationship with God is just the same. When we believe, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. And then from that day forward, we have this this ongoing ministry that's a part of our lives that involves being filled, being filled with the Spirit. Uh, every, Every year during Lent, we take up this practice of fasting, right? where we very intentionally try to feel acutely how we fill the hole inside us in, um, in unsatisfying ways. So we push away things that actually really don't fill us so that we can be more acutely aware of how God does fill us. Right? That should not be something that we only do during one season. That is a way of life for the Christian. We are always fasting, whether we know it or not. We are always pushing away things that don't fill and turning to the Lord to be filled by him. But Lent reminds us of this practice.
We have to ask for God's help to clean out the debris in our hearts pretty routinely. We just pick stuff up. We accumulate it, right? We have to ask him to show us what's in there and to help us get it out. It can be hard to remember to seek the Lord in this way. The, the, the world is constantly trying to distract us, constantly trying to get us to put other things in our hearts. But all of that glittering stuff out there really doesn't satisfy. Just look at this wonderful, uh, expensive smartphone that you carry that doesn't satisfy. It's a distraction. So I want to invite you, um, if you have been baptized, if you have been initiated, uh, in a few minutes we will come to the Lord's table, which is ultimately the great reminder for us, week after week after week, of this filling of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus was talking about with the woman. You can be filled and never thirst again. Every Sunday is like a refresher course on the basics, isn't it? We come back in here, we confess our sins to the Lord, we try to clean out the junk, and then we are filled with the word, and we signify that with a filling that comes from the table. Reconnection with the Lord, communion with him. That's what Jesus was talking about. He says to us, come and drink and have your fill this morning. He's really what you've been thirsty for. Will you pray with me? Thank you for this wonderful gift, Almighty God, the gift of your Son, who is truly satisfying. Open our hearts now to receive this gift to the overflowing this morning that we might go out into the world uh, cups that spill over with his love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.